0: Well Church, good morning. It's so good to see you guys. Uh, you know, I was thinking while, uh, we, while, uh, <clears throat> while we were singing, I was also, you know, very much focused on, on the Lord and, and worshiping Him in song, but I was also thinking about how, uh, you know, uh, I have never done this uh, while at Freshwater, but uh, something that I, I used to do a lot, and it may have to happen today, Like we are good Baptists today because you guys are all way back there. I've never done this here because we did the live stream. But but used to when I would preach, I would just come like right down here um, and just like get amongst you so that um, you you couldn't you know choose to stay away, stay that far back. Um, I'm not going to do that today. But uh, um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Brandon and I'm one of the pastors here and. uh, we are in a series in John. If this is your first time or one of your first times here, I would invite you to turn to the book of, of John chapter 4, uh, and and I'll, I'll share a little bit with you about what our uh, this, this series really is all about. I mean, it says it right there on the screen, to know and believe. To know and believe. The, the theme of John's gospel is that Uh, We are to see that Jesus is the Promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Man of God. And that by knowing Him and believing in Him, we are given eternal life. So that's where this know and believe, to know Jesus and to believe in Jesus. So we are in John chapter 4, as I said, and uh, this is going to be part 1 this morning of of two parts. And it's going to be John 4, 1 through 45. But don't panic. We're not doing all 45 this morning. I'm going to cut it in half, roundabout, but I'm still going to have to move really, really fast because I've got a lot of ground to cover, a lot that I want to share with you. There's a great deal of context that goes with this passage of Scripture that we're in. Uh, So we're going to go to verse 26 today. And so I'm not going to waste any more time. Uh, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and then we will go to God's Word. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you. We are grateful for your presence, Uh, so grateful for those words that that Jeff just shared with us, the the challenge and the encouragement to to have our affections stirred by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that that we would, um, I pray that we would be a people who desire to know you deeply, uh, passionately, boldly, uh, convictionally, Lord, that we wouldn't be just Christian in name only. We wouldn't be just going through the motions, Father, that we come here Um, on Sunday mornings to gather as a body with the intent of worshiping you. And that is all that we are here to do, is to worship you. We do that through song and through prayer and through the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, and as we're going to observe today, the taking of communion in remembrance of the, the sacrifice that Christ made for us. So, Father, may everything that we say and do here be an act of worship to you. As we look at your word, I pray, Father, that you would give me clarity, that you would give me boldness, Um, but you would keep me humble and and hidden behind the cross of Christ, that I am uh, only to speak to make much of the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ, and that is all that I am interested in. So, Father, come stir our hearts, um, equip us for the life that you have given us. Uh, We love you. We thank you for your word and the truth that it holds, and we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Excuse me. All right, John, John chapter 4. Let me get a drink before we read. John chapter 4, beginning in verse one not going to read it all the way through. I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a couple of rest stops along the way. John chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So when he came to the, the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So let me stop there and just say we are, we are met yet again with another transition with John. We have these transitional scenes time and time again. We've already encountered several, and we're going to encounter more as we continue through the, the Gospel of John. But these sections of John's Gospel that are marked very specifically by, by the details of date and time and people who are involved... All right we have Nicodemus, uh, we have John the Baptist and, and uh, the Pharisees, and now we have the woman at the well we're going to have many more as we travel along, but uh, we, we come to yet another one here in chapter four, where we have this famous interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Before we get into that exchange, though, I want to talk about these first six verses really quick, because we are told that that Jesus left Judea, that was the southern part. Uh, because he had learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing more people than John. Although he wasn't. John tells us that, that, that's John the Baptist. John the Apostle is the one writing the letter, tells us that he wasn't baptizing anyone. It was only his disciples that were doing so. But this departure from, uh, from Judea, most likely Jerusalem, uh, because of the Pharisees' presence, it isn't because of Jesus' fear of the Pharisees. Right, I want you to understand that, that, that Jesus isn't getting away from trouble. He isn't fearful of the knowledge that the, that, that the Pharisees are gaining about what he is doing. He's becoming more popular because we see back in chapter 3, John the Baptist tells us that he, he exalts Christ. He, he magnifies Christ and in, in who he is as the Son of God, as the exalted one. He just continues, as, as we saw earlier in, in the letter, he just continues to point to Jesus. And it's all about Jesus. It's only about Jesus. It isn't about what John is doing. So he's exalting Christ. And he also goes on to say in verse 35 of, of, of chapter 3 that the Father has given all things into his hand. All things. So Jesus has nothing to fear, nothing to worry about he has been given all authority the fact that all things have been given into his hands means that that he has authority over over all things and he has no reason to fear that's why i've shared with you before with the great commission um, christ says to his disciples um, i am spacing out somebody help me out uh, all all authority has been given unto me therefore and so then he, he proceeds to get, he says therefore go So if all power and authority, all power and authority has been given to Christ, then that means that there is nothing that can thwart his plans. He is about the Father's mission, and he will accomplish it. But I think it is safe to say that in this mission, he knows that there's going to be confrontation right the, the the Pharisees were questioning John the Baptist because they wanted to know what he was about and because he was he was drawing a crowd and ultimately it would have led to probably a great deal of confrontation between the Pharisees and the same is going to be true of Jesus the same if you, it's going to it's going to happen like that's what leads to the cross is he eventually makes enough enemies with this message and and the ministry that he is uh, about <clears throat> And so the confrontation between the religious leaders, uh, I think that it's, it's safe to assume he's just simply delaying that. We see that in other parts of scripture where Jesus will, he'll flee, or, or he'll, he'll go and, and be in times of, of silence and solitude alone, away from the crowds, or he'll say something to push the crowds away. So uh, I, I think that that is what we're looking at here. The fact that the text says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria on his journey, if he isn't fearful, then, then why did he have to? Why did he have to go through Samaria? And that question may seem strange, but there's some context that's, that, that goes along with this. Some really historical, geographical context, if you don't know, which I'm gonna share with you, uh, that, that pose is why I asked that question. So let me give you some context for a fuller picture. The shortest geographical route from, Galilee, from Judea to Galilee, which was north, was a three-day journey straight through the middle of Samaria. So to go from, from Judea to Galilee, you had to go through Samaria. There was an alternate route that existed that would have been a means of traveling to the east all the way over to the Jordan River near Jericho. You would cross over the Jordan River and then you would travel north up the east bank in Gentile territory until you were north of Samaria and then you crossed back over the Jordan into Galilee. This was a much longer, much more inconvenient route to take. So so why did people do it? In 720, around 722 BC, give you a, a quick history lesson from, from the Old Testament. Around 720, 722 B.C., the Assyrians laid siege to uh, Samaria, and, and they captured it. And in doing so, they deported most of the Israelites out of that area. But then they didn't stop there. They, the Assyrian king then brought foreigners into the land to reside there. And those foreigners began to intermarry with the few Israelites that remained in the area. <clears throat> and as a result of this, those individuals and their offspring, they didn't follow after the Lord. They, they not only intermarried, uh, they, they intermingled different various foreign pagan religions into uh, the, the Judaism that they had. And all of this is in 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18. If you want to go there sometime, not now, go and read it. It's, it's, it's all there. Everything that I'm telling you uh, is it, it's, it's encapsulated in those two chapters. Um, and then not only that, you'll also dis- discover something um, pretty remarkable. I had forgotten about this story until I went and looked at it and I was reading it. I'm like, whoa. That's wild so because people didn't fear or follow after the Lord uh, in those two chapters that I just shared with you second Kings chapter 17 and 18 um, they didn't fear or follow after the Lord the Lord sent in lions into the land to kill the people so you guys don't seem to think that's as remarkable as I do um, that's pretty wild right <clears throat> We don't see or hear things, like that's a total sidebar, but um, I was reading that and I had forgotten. I'm like, wow, this is so crazy. It's like the, the people just didn't follow after the Lord, so he sent lions in there to kill people. And so then the Assyrian king, this is more than I was planning on sharing with you. Um, he's like, he hears about people being killed by lions and he's, he, and he's like, okay, whoa, we gotta, we gotta find one of the prophets and send them back to teach the people to follow after God so the lions will stop killing people. So go read it sometime. Uh, remarkable story. That's all I'm going to share with you. We've got way too much more to cover. But when the Jews would eventually return from captivity, they returned to Samaria. They considered the Samaritans half-breeds uh, who practiced, as I said, a, a co-mingling of religions. And as a result, they hated them. They thought they were traitors. Um, and so there began to exist segregation in their worship so much so that in in 400 BC the Samaritans built a rival temple on the top of Mount Gerizim right they 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 refused to go and and worship in Jerusalem so they built a rival temple which just so happened to just add fuel to the fire was destroyed by a Judean ruler in the second century BC destroyed the whole temple so you can imagine, if, if you will, that all of this contributed to a great deal of hatred and religious rivalry between the two. So that's the context that we have when Jesus travels into Samaria and sits down at a well and begins to talk to a Samaritan woman. Some commentators uh, have have stated that because of this animosity, this alternate route that I told you about, was commonly taken in order to avoid Samaria. The the, the truth is, everywhere I looked, um, and and the the main source that I looked uh, was was Josephus, who was a Jewish historian. He said that, in fact, really wasn't the case. Only the, the most strict and devout Jews would take that alternate route. Most people, go figure, it's the same for us today. They, they picked the, the easier route uh, that, that, that was less demanding and that they would still prefer to, to take the shorter route through Samaria. So, but it says that Jesus had to. Why did he have to? Maybe Jesus had to pass this way simply because it was the shortest route. It made sense. Why would you go out of the way? I mean, Jesus doesn't hate the Samaritans as the way many of the other Jews do. Maybe the words indicate, I think, that, that Jesus' journey was, was just subject to the providential will of God. That, that the sovereign plan of God was what led Jesus to, to take this route. And I think this, this, this idea is supported in the text because this phrase, had to, In the Greek it's translated from the word dei, which we also get a word for God, but the word dei, it means very directly to be necessary, to be be divinely commanded. You had to do it. And this is what we see everywhere else in John when this word is used, that's what it means. So everywhere else in John that this word is used, I think it's a safe argument to say that it probably applies here as well. We know that that Jesus was about his Father's work. So I think the had to was because this was what the Lord intended. This was his will. This conversation was divinely orchestrated by the Father. We're told that that Jesus gets there uh, around the sixth hour. That's noon. So being tired and hot, no doubt. Jesus stops to rest from his journey at at Jacob's well near Sychar. Let's pick back up at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? jesus said to her everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that i will give him will never be thirsty again the water that i will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life the woman said to him sir give me this water so that i will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again So a woman from Samaria came to draw water while Jesus was resting at the well. Now it was very typical for women of that day to fetch water oftentimes in groups, um, but they would generally avoid going at the noon hour so as to not be out in in the heat of the sun. It was very typical for this to be done, but we see that this woman it appears comes alone. If you're familiar with the text, then, then you're going to know why. And if you don't, then I'm, I'm about to tell you, but we see Jesus takes the initiative in speaking to this Samaritan woman. He speaks to her first, and maybe you, you don't know this, but this was completely out of the ordinary. This is breaking every social norm that exists in his day, because he is a Jew, and she is a Samaritan because. He is a male and a rabbi and she is a woman. And so he is breaking societal norms right here. And she's taken aback. She says, why is it that you ask me for water? Jesus is a Jew asking a Samaritan woman. Any any of that interaction between the two would have been completely out of the question. And it wouldn't be very many years after this that there was an actual Jewish, Jewish law that would go into effect that considered a Samaritan woman to be a perpetual menstruant, meaning that they were considered to be ceremonially unclean all the time, according to the Jews. So you would have no interaction with him ever. And so Jesus... Knowing that this is the climate that's leading up to that actual law and knowing that that law is coming, he's, he's stepping outside of societal norms. <clears throat> he knows of these perceptions and these prejudices that exist, yet he continues to break time and time again social and religious taboos in order to reveal the gospel to those that he encounters. And so this is the reason for the woman's response. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask, for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. But the words of Jesus reveal that, that he isn't just some ordinary Jewish man that happened to be sitting at the well. Right? Because he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This woman has no idea who she's speaking to. She, does, she has no idea of the offer that is being made to her. She doesn't know that this is the savior of the world that is setting before her, the incarnate son of God, God in the flesh, setting before her, asking her for a drink. But we know, don't we? All right, as we watch this scene play out, we are aware of this shameful woman, which I'm about to tell you why, this, this shameful woman that comes before Jesus, God in the flesh, she's speaking to John 1.1, 1, 1, the literal word of God, made into flesh. And so, if you, if you want to view Scripture in this way, Um, I think it it, it can be fruitful at times um, to see, it's a story, it's a scene in a movie that's playing out. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, the best example that I can use, and I'm not even going to at all worry about spoiler alerts, because if you haven't seen this movie yet, then I don't know what to tell you. But the movie, The Sixth Sense, right? Like, have you ever watched that movie with someone else who's never seen it? And if you've never seen it, then it's, uh, well... The, it, there's a twist, all right? So, I, I, I won't ruin it for you. I, I'll, I'll be generous. So, but my, my point is this. Like, you, you're watching this movie with someone, and they're like, what is going on? Like, I don't understand. And then, like, the time, the moment comes, like, like you know the whole time, because you've seen it. You're like, yeah, see, like, like oh, my ah, nope. I can't say anything. I want to, edge the seat. And then it gets to the end, and the person that's watching is like, oh my gosh. I never knew the whole time. He was dead. Um right and so like that's that's what I get in this story like it's Jesus and she doesn't know it and in this conversation some really interesting things are going to happen I'm going to show you if you haven't seen them. she's really trying to change the subject a lot she doesn't want to deal with what Jesus is about to make her deal with because she doesn't know who she's talking to Jesus's words about living water to her have a double meaning, of course. I want you to know he is literally referring to fresh spring water that you draw from a well. I think he truly wanted a drink. But we know from John chapter seven, if you were to look ahead in verses 38 and 39, that he he is also referring to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within a believer. And because of this double meaning, I don't know what's going on with my throat, guys, I'm sorry. Because of this double meaning, the woman very easily misunderstands the meaning of Jesus' words. If you remember, just in the same way that Nicodemus did, right, what was Nicodemus's question? How, I'm a grown man. How can I be born again? And so just in the same way that Nicodemus misses it, this Samaritan woman misses it as well. She has to return to this well day after day after day to fetch more water, and she goes by herself, the hottest part of the day, by herself. She wants to know where Jesus gets this water. He doesn't have a bucket. She says, you don't even have a bucket. How are you gonna get this water? The words in in the text are, Zeohudor and that, that that phrase living water Zeohudor and that means that this is in the in, in that Greek translation the water is, is is water that gives God's gift of life so it is very much a play on words that Jesus is he's talking about literal water but he's also using a phrase that that she would have been pretty unfamiliar with. What is, this, what is this living water? What is this water that gives God's gift of life? I want to know where you get it. You don't even have a bucket. And then she goes on to question, I think almost in maybe somewhat of a, of a snide way. Are you, are you greater than our father Jacob, who dug this well? Who, who, who his family and his livestock got water from this well? This is Jacob, the, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. I think this is showing that she's skeptical of Jesus's words. She says the well is deep. You don't have a bucket. Where do you get this water? But Jesus is going to show her that he is in fact greater than Jacob and that the water that he offers doesn't come from an earthly well dug by hands. The water from Jacob's well, like any water, would only quench your thirst momentarily. All right, only for a short while, but this spiritual water that Jesus provides, it, he's saying it eliminates thirst for eternity. All right, so connect the dots. Literal, eternal thirst, it doesn't mean actual, physical thirst. Spiritual thirst, we thirst for something more. If you have been just dehydrated or parched and you need something to drink, then you can, you can understand the illustration that's being made how badly you want something to drink, how you thirst for it. Jesus is saying, this is the case. This spiritual thirst that he can provide for. And this language plays off several promises found in Isaiah, which I'm gonna share with you quickly, which the woman wouldn't have known right because she's a Samaritan and if you don't know the Samaritans held only to the Pentateuch the first five books of the Old Testament they did not consider any of the Old Testament books uh, that were in circulation which wouldn't have been a ton um, they did not consider those to be scripture but Jesus shares um, I, I think he, he, he is speaking in language that we see time and time again in Isaiah Isaiah has multiple passages of scripture that are prophetic verses pointing towards Jesus So let me share those with you quickly. Isaiah chapter 12 verse 3 states that, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 44 verse 3, Regarding a chosen Israel, it says this, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 49 verse 10, referring to Israel's restoration, it says this, that they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them." And then the last one, Isaiah 55 verse one, it says, "'Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat.'" So this is the living water that Jesus is speaking of and offering to this Samaritan woman, this water that provides life, eternal spiritual life that takes away The spiritual thirst that one has when they don't know the Lord she wants this water she she wants to stop coming to this well to draw water again and again and this shows that she still doesn't understand what Jesus is saying and she only sees this water in a purely natural sense so let's go back to the text verse 16 Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And here it is, here's the moment. If you haven't seen Sixth Sense, this is it. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And we're going to stop there today because we still have a lot to unpack in that text. And then we're going to pick up the rest of that chapter next Sunday. To direct the woman to the kind of water that Jesus speaks of, the spiritual water, because she doesn't understand, he turns the focus of the conversation to the matter of her own sin. Which seems like an odd thing to do if you don't know that he's speaking of spiritual water. And so she fails to see this. She fails to understand who she's speaking with. She also fails to see what her deepest need is. Her deepest need isn't literal physical thirst. It's spiritual thirst. And Jesus cuts straight to the chase with what seems to be an odd change of subject. He asks her to go and get her husband. And she tells him the truth, she responds, she has no husband, which is only partially true, right? She, she doesn't have a husband, but she's ha- she has had five. And that the man that she's with now, presumably living with now, she, she's not married to. Inferring that, that living together, um, which is prevalent today, it, in, in, in God's sight, it doesn't constitute his marriage and how often do we do something like this, what this Samaritan woman is doing? All right, we'll tell a half-truth. We won't, we won't face the thing that we know to be true. We'll try to dodge it. We'll try to, we'll try to go around it if we can, just like this Samaritan woman undoubtedly she felt guilt and shame over her sin the fact that she had been married five times we don't know why we don't know if if the men have died or if they have been divorced we don't know but we know that Jesus uses this as a point of connection with her to draw her in to help her see her her truest need she doesn't know the Lord and worse worse than that is what we'll see in a minute she thinks that she does But undoubtedly she felt guilt and shame over her sin. This is why she would have come to the well by herself at the hottest time of the day when no one else did. When women came, either in the the morning or in the evening in groups, she came in the middle of the day by herself. She was an outcast. She had shame, she had guilt. Jesus knew this. He's cutting to the quick with his questions. She's dodging, seeking not to answer them. And she, she gives him a partial truth. You've heard this before. Maybe maybe we've said it. Like, well, you know, technically, it's, it's not a lie. I mean, t- I, technically, you know, this thing that I said is true. But I, I've heard people say that. I'm have No doubt. I, I've said it. I've been guilty of this. And this is what the Samaritan woman is doing. But the thing is, I want you to see, church, is that she knew she was lying. And in truth, when, when we do this, so do we. We know this. And then worst of all, as we see in this story, and as what is true in our own lives, so does Jesus. Jesus knows when we're not being honest. He knows the hearts of men. And so this is one of those many great examples of Jesus masterfully turning a conversation And revealing to a person the true condition of their life and their need for his perfect gift of salvation and so when when I try to encourage uh, or encourage all of us or pray that that we would people who, who are without Christ in their lives my prayer is always that that they would see the truth of their sin and the shame, and the guilt, and the devastation that comes from that. that They stand as guilty sinners before God, as enemies before God, to see the true reality of their sin. That's what Jesus is doing with this Samaritan woman in this conversation. But then the next step from that, what I say and what I pray, is that they would see their need for a Savior in Christ. That God would move and stir their hearts in such a way that they would see that they are, in fact, sinful and enemies of God, and they need a Savior, and that Savior is Christ. And so he's turning the conversation to help her to see this. And this causes her to quickly realize that she is speaking with no ordinary man. She says, sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. I would think so he just he just told her a pretty remarkable truth that might have been public knowledge but Jesus isn't a Samaritan and Jesus doesn't spend a great deal of time in Samaria so how would he know this but she's not ready to lay bare her guilt and ask for the hope that Jesus offers she still doesn't understand the meaning of the water instead she shifts the subject from herself to a matter of public worship Right, rather than face her own convictions, her own sin, her own shame, she wants to see if this prophet that sets before her can help settle a little dispute that exists between the Jews and Samaritans about worship. Right, she says, Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you, Jews, you Jews, you say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. The Samaritans believed that. Their mountain, Mount Gerizim, was, was the true place to worship because they, they believed, and maybe rightfully so, that this was, it, it's at least near where Abraham, when he first came into the promised land, he built an altar unto the Lord. We see that in Genesis chapter 12. So because of this, they're basing everything off of that. But Jesus answers her by essentially telling her that the place of worship is It's irrelevant or it's about to be irrelevant. It doesn't matter. He says, it doesn't matter if you worship on that mountain or, or this mountain. He says, woman, believe me about what I'm about to tell you. Believe what I'm saying. And this is the same word again, uh, back in chapter two that Jesus used to refer to his mother um, as ma'am. He says, ma'am, woman, believe me the hour is coming he's referring to his death his resurrection and his exaltation he's saying the hour is coming and he's about to do away with this silly dispute that exists between the jews and the samaritans and he's going to do away with temple worship and he's going to do away with the sacrificial system and then it won't matter whether it's that mountain or this mountain but he doesn't stop there. He tells her in verse 22, you worship what you don't know. We Jews, we worship what we do know. It says that salvation springs forth from the Jews. And I think that infers not from the Samaritans. One commentator that I read put it this way. Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman that the object of their worship is unknown to them. They stand outside the stream of God's revelation so that what they worship cannot possibly be characterized by truth and knowledge. Right, so that means that the salvation isn't something that's just left to be reached by someone who just vaguely desires a God of mercy, which is what I think would characterize many of the Samaritans. They've had this co-mingling of religion. They're kind of doing things their own way based on their own interpretation and understanding of the text, which, keep in mind, were only the first five books. They didn't read anything else outside of that. So that means that they, they wouldn't have known about how how God affirmed the building of the temple in Jerusalem and the sacrificial systems that existed. They wouldn't have read any of that. So regarding the dispute, Jesus tells her that the the worship of the Jews, while not perfect, is right. But then he quickly moves to a bigger truth. He says that The time has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Rather than on this mountain or on that one, we will worship in spirit and truth. And so true worshipers, people who truly know the Lord, those who are truly led by him, who have the desire to seek him and follow him, true worshipers, they aren't identified by their allegiance to anything other than God. It isn't about this mountain, or that mountain, or this temple, or that temple. None of it matters. It isn't about this building, or Williams Elementary. None of that matters. What matters is that our our allegiance, much like in my prayer, our worship is unto God. Church, understand that when we come here, it isn't for us. None of this is for us, it's all for God. And so I don't, I don't say this to offend, but like it, it matters nothing what we think about the style of, of music that we play or, 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 a, or any of it. It only matters that our focus, that our eyes are on the Lord, that we worship him truly, that we are identified by our allegiance to Christ. And that all must be done in spirit and truth is what Jesus is saying to this woman. Because God is spirit, which means that he is not made of physical parts. All right, so understand, I've, I've shared this with you before, but when scripture talks about the hand of God or the mouth of God or the eyes of God, those aren't, those aren't literal descriptions. Right? Our, our Father in heaven, our creator, he doesn't have a literal physical body. He is spirit. Which is why Christ being incarnate, meaning in the flesh, being God, is so significant. God isn't made of physical parts. He doesn't have a physical body. He has a much more wonderful existence, honestly, that we we couldn't possibly comprehend. Do you understand how big our God is that, that he isn't like us? We can't comprehend how he is everywhere, all at once, all of the time. He is outside of time and space. And if that doesn't blow your mind, then you haven't spent enough time thinking about it. God is a great, big God in spirit form. So we must must worship him in spirit. And this is why we, we can't be confined just to one place and think that, that that's where our worship is. That's why all of our lives should be a life of worship. Right? We worship God in our homes. We worship God in our jobs. We worship God here. We worship God in our just leisure and recreation and going to the lake and going to sporting events. All of it is worship. Because God is divine all powerful and and utterly unlike us and unknowable to us unless he chooses to reveal himself to us and that's what Jesus is saying to this woman that our our worship and and that's my word to us to myself today that our our worship must be centered entirely upon God and nothing else it doesn't matter if which one of the, the three of us, whether it's JT or myself or Tony, it doesn't matter which one you like to listen to the most. It matters that we, we properly exegete and share God's word with you and that you are fed from it. But, but let me tell you this as well. It isn't even our job to feed you spiritually. It's yours. It's, it's your job to do that. Yes, we, we, we provide that, but... If, if you're just coming and attending and, and receiving this message as, as a shot in the arm just to get you through the next week, then, then you aren't worshiping God. Not truly, not in spirit and truth, which is what Jesus is getting at. That's the heart of what he is sharing with this woman. Our worship is made possible only by the gift of the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ in our lives. So all of that that I just said, if if we're able to do that properly, rightly, in a way that honors the Lord, it is only because God is at work in our life. It is only because we are dependent upon Him, because we seek the work of the Lord in our lives. And I think that's why, uh, I don't have the time to get into it, but why we are called to worship in very specific ways. Why we don't have images of God and and it's because his spirit transforms everything that is is, is material that we don't we don't um, water down who God is by trying to encapsulate him in an image. True worshipers must worship God in accordance with who and what he is. So imagine being this woman who has, has never heard anything like this in her entire life. Right? doesn't understand anything that Jesus is saying because he is dropping some heavy truth on her in this conversation and she's not catching very much of it. I say not very much of it because I think she is catching some because she acknowledges, I think, by saying that the Messiah is coming. Right, the Savior is coming and he will tell us all things. So this answer that Jesus gives her that she probably doesn't like He's saying it doesn't matter about your mountain or their mountain, this temple or that temple. None of it matters. I'm like, well, the Messiah is coming. He'll tell us. I know he's coming. And I don't know, maybe it, this is just a theory, but I think, I think she's fishing a little bit. I think she's, she already called the man a prophet. And that's significant because the Samaritans, uh, if, you, if you don't know, uh, they didn't just throw prophet around willy nilly. They believe that Moses was the true prophet, and there wouldn't be another prophet after Moses until the Messiah came. And she said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. It's almost as if she's saying, and that's why I say this is theory, I don't know this. We, the text doesn't tell us, but she, I think she, it, she's getting at, first she calls him a prophet, then she says the Messiah is coming, and he will tell us everything. Is, she, is it possible that she's asking Jesus, are, are you the Christ? And Jesus rarely in, in Scripture does this. He identifies himself directly as the Messiah. He says, I am he. Right? And, and he didn't do this because the Jews would have thought that meant an immediate political overturning of the oppressive government of Rome. All right, so he seldomly did this, but he, he tells her just straight to the point I, I'm him, him. I'm the Messiah. Maybe it's because he's in, in Samaria and he's away from the sinners of, of Judaism and their worship. He departs from this pattern. We don't know, but as a result, the woman is brought from her, her lowly condition. And I think the light is on. The curtains have been removed. She sees it all now. She understands who's before her. And it isn't just because he told her, right? Because there were countless people walking around Judea in the first and second century claiming to be the Messiah. So much so that the Pharisees, if you remember, went to John the Baptist to ask him if that was him. Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? And he's, she sees, she understands, she knows. She knows and believes. She now knows who Jesus is and she believes because the work has been done in her heart. And she's, she's brought from this lowly condition. And Jesus reveals to her her sin and he shows her the thirst that she didn't even know she had. Now she sees it and, and, and she wants this thing that Jesus has to offer. So, here's how I think this, this fits into to our lives today. All right, I wanna I want to, to press in on you for just a moment, myself included. First I'll say, if, if you have never experienced true, actual spirit and truth worship, you have no idea what that means. If, 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 you, if you are here and you feel like maybe I've, maybe I've just been going through the motions, maybe I've just been missing it this whole time, then the first thing that you need, without question, is Christ. You need to be born anew as, as Jesus shares with Nicodemus. You need to be born again. You need to hear Jesus say to you, I am the living water. You need me. You need to see the truth of your sin and that that makes you an enemy of God. You are guilty. And there is nothing, not one single thing that you can do to change that. The debt that you have, you cannot pay. The guilt that you have, you, you cannot shed it off. You must have the Savior. And if you've heard those words before and, and it still just doesn't compute, it still doesn't res- resonate in your heart, then pray unto the Lord to, to, to reveal the truth of that word to you. If you feel like you're in a place where the Samaritan woman is, where you, you thought that you understood, you thought, you knew, you thought you were truly worshiping the Lord, but but these words that, that I'm sharing with you, they don't compute, they don't make sense, I don't understand, I don't feel it, I don't feel like I'm truly worshiping as a response out of that. Right, because, and, and let me share with you, church, I, I think this ought to be, in in some sense, your, your experience when you worship. I think this is, you know, this isn't, a one-size-fits-all but what I'm about to share with you like I think our worship experience every one of them should fit inside of this if if you come here and you hear me or you hear JT or you hear Tony say words like you're you you know without Christ you're a wretched sinner you're an enemy of God you're lost and, and in despair and without hope that sounds pretty tragic that sounds pretty discouraging I understand you don't leave here feeling uplifted and encouraged and ready to go out and, and, and take the world for Christ. That isn't the encouraging part. The gospel means good news, right? And so you can't have good news unless you have bad news. And that's the bad news. But here's the encouraging part. The good news is, is that, but God being rich in mercy and steadfast love saw fit to save you saw fit to send Christ as a sacrifice for sin, that you and me being so guilty and so weighed down by shame, we could do nothing. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, dead. But God, he comes and he lifts the burden of sin and shame. He says, you're mine. And if that isn't encouraging, if that doesn't in some sense lead you to a place to want to worship God. I had this conversation with someone just a couple of weeks ago. This is going to sound really strong. But if you aren't encouraged by that, if you aren't encouraged by the fact that you were once a sinner lost and in shame and an enemy of God. But God, being rich in mercy, came and he saved you and he paid the debt that you could never pay and he paid it forever. If that doesn't encourage you and lead you to a place of worship, then maybe you are not a Christian. Maybe you don't know the Lord if that doesn't stir up the affections inside of your heart. I've had this conversation about three times in the last three weeks, and I'm sharing it with you now, and even now inside of me, because I know the truth of who I am. I know what I'm capable of, how much of a wretched sinner I was, and how I can still sometimes be. But God, being rich in mercy, I I didn't deserve it. I'm confessing to you, church. I know before Christ came in and saved me, I deserved hell. But now I've been set free. Now I have abundant life in the grace of God. And it blows me away. And so if if that doesn't resonate with you, then go to the Lord and do work today. And if you don't understand any of that, then ask God to reveal this truth that you need to be born anew. Because that is the only way that true worship will ever be possible in your life. If you surrender to him, then you will be able to worship in spirit and in truth. And apart from that, as I've said, you're lost and you're destined for hell and you can't do anything to change it. And if you're here this morning and Christ is your Savior, and all of that I just said, you're just yes and amen, I believe that, my affections are stirred, I'm all in, I believe 100%, He is my Savior. Then understand that that He calls us to be men and women who really understand how amazingly wonderful He is and how much He has done for us. That we are not a people called to weak and complacent and stagnant faith. If you know, when you get to the book of Revelation, who was also written by the apostle John, he says, well, the, the Lord rather says that, I would rather you be hot or cold, either be on fire for the Lord, which I don't even know what that statement means, but you know what it, like you understand, like that we're, we're all in, we're, we're committed, we're devoted, we're disciplined, we love the Lord, we worship the Lord. Be that or be nothing, but don't be in the middle. Don't be lukewarm. Why? He says, I will? because I'll spew you out of my mouth. It's disgusting, I don't want it. I'll spit you out of my mouth. So understand, we aren't called to weak or complacent faith. We aren't called to just check the box on Sunday morning with church attendance or check the box on Sunday or Wednesday night with Life Group. We are not called to be Christians in name only we are called to be christian in everything that we do we are called to be christian in the way that we love our spouse and the way that we lead or submit to our spouse in the way that we we lead and, and and disciple our children the ways that we work all that we do we are we are christian in all of that and so christ calls us to be amazed at who he is and to adore Him, because He seeks to be worshiped in spirit and truth, and there is nothing more important than what we think of Him and how we worship Him. And one way that we can do that is by observing the command that we have to take communion, to to approach the Lord's table. And so, bear with me for just one second. I don't know what happened. Oh well, I don't need it. Um, as as we approach the Lord's table, then my prayer, my request to you is that you would you would ponder these things that I've shared with you. That you you would understand that the symbols. The the, the elements that we have on the table, the the bread and the juice, they're symbols. The the bread symbolizes the body of Christ that was sacrificed on account of us. The the juice sacrificed the blood of Christ that was spilled out to wash over us for the remission of our sins, to declare us not guilty, to declare us righteous, to no longer be enemies of God, to to be children of God. May we never, ever, ever lose sight of the significance of the cross and that we would obey the command of our Savior to take it and to remember what He's done for us. So, here in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to come. We've got tables on both sides. Come and with your family and with or a friend. Come and, and when you're ready, take these elements. You can go back to, to your, your seats. And I just encourage you to, to, to pray with one another, to, to pray over what these elements symbolize and what that means to you in your life. Right, and, and as, as we always do, I would, I would say that if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, then just respectfully, please don't come and, and take of these elements. It isn't to, to point you out, or to in any way shun you. It's just, this is a very special and sacred thing that we do, and so I just ask you, out of respect, please don't, don't come and, and take of these. Just remain where you are. Um, but I would invite you to just, uh, as the music begins to play, just when you're ready, come up, grab these elements, take them back to your seats. And please, I, I, I can't say it enough, please, think intentionally, think deeply, think specifically about what these elements symbolize and what that should mean to you and how that should stir up your affections for the Lord and how that should lead you to want to do the hard things. And, and if you have indwelling sin in your life, if you have some secret hidden sin i'm not saying that you go and you confess it to everyone but but go to who you need to go to go to the lord and confess those things these elements that resemble that 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 symbolize the the body and, and the blood of christ that were sacrificed on our account for our guilt you understand jesus was innocent he had no sin no shame no guilt but he laid his life down for us why because of the love and grace of God to be extended to us. So don't take this lightly. Come and and gather them and, and to think deeply and to pray. Thank the Lord, confess your sin, worship God. Be thankful that we serve a savior who is alive and well, seated at the right hand of God in heaven, who sits in all power and authority. That's our king. If that means nothing to you, then go to the Lord and ask him to break your heart and to reveal this truth to you. I beg you, let me pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we... I must confess just at... at, at times feel a loss for words, for who you are. How, God, you are so far above and beyond anything that we can comprehend, yet, Lord, you you condescend and come down and approach us so that we might have fellowship with you, that we might worship you, that we might know and, and be known by you. Lord, help us to walk in that reality today. Help us to be people of the word, people who desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. May this taking of communion, Lord, be an act of worship unto you. I ask that your Holy Spirit would come and, and move amongst us, stir our hearts, stir up our thoughts, for you and Lord in whatever way you're calling this morning that we would just surrender to you father we love you we worship you all of this is for you we ask this in Christ's name amen